0: Hey, it's Don Coscarelli, filmmaker.
1: I uh, just wrote a book. Check it out. It's called Fiction, Tales from the World of Phantasm. And uh, it can teach you all the things that you never knew about the Phantasm film series. A lot of interesting stuff. Horror, violence, not much sex. Check it out. Now available on Amazon,
0: paperback, and Kindle.
2: Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. On the last episode of the Video Archives podcast, Roger and Quentin put on a little lipstick.
0: There's an approach to the violence that's occurring that somehow makes it watchable as if it's mass entertainment.
2: Got in the ring with the one and only.
0: They don't want to see that stupid play.
2: (laughs) (laughs) They wanted to laugh, but I gave them a reason to laugh. And traveled back to 1978 through the lens of slithers. This movie is almost serves
0: as a kind of document of the city at that time.
2: And now we bring you The After Show, your backstage pass to exclusive content, answers to your burning questions, and even more film discussion. I'm your muck monster, Gala Avery, or Spawn of the Avery, depending on who you ask. You may not know it, but I am always listening. I was at a local boba cafe and overheard a discussion of a group of high schoolers all about movies. I couldn't help but bring the question to video archives to hear what Roger and Quentin thought about it. You know, before you guys begin, I actually have a question for you guys. (laughs) Because, okay, so when I go, when I listen to the podcast, I try to do things like when the edits, I try to do things that are like normal people things that normal people would do when they listen to podcasts.
0: So you play act.
2: Yeah, I I pretend I'm an old person. (laughs) I do my laundry. I was going to say dishes. I do my laundry. I do dishes. I hula hoop. (laughs) But one of the things I do, I like to go to this boba cafe near me. Mm -hmm. And I'm listening to the podcast. And all of a sudden, I hear these, like, high schoolers behind me. And they start saying, well, is is Parasite a classic movie? And I'm like, Parasite? Is that a classic movie? And they start having this big discussion on what is a classic movie. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to figure out what's a classic movie. So I wanted to ask you guys, what do you guys consider a classic movie to be?
0: Yeah, because if you're born in like 95 or something or, or even later, like I, a, know, a classic movie can be, you, you know, want this? is it before you're born?
2: Well, I just I started having this debate with people about like, how long does it take to become a classic movie?
0: Actually, I think in the old days
1: it was like 20 or 30 years. I think like 20 doesn't
0: seem that long. I think 30 years actually. Yeah, because
2: 20 was like what I started saying. And then people were saying, no, like 10, 15. I was saying, that's not no. long enough. Well, what
0: about the whole thing of like an instant classic? This that's movie's. That's not
2: a-, a real thing. That's not a real thing. Okay,
0: okay, that's, that's a marketing thing. That's, 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 that's a marketing thing. Yeah. yeah.
2: Okay, that's what I. Because I was saying 20 years and everyone was saying, well, what about cult classics? What about instant classics? And I was saying, a cult no. Classes- it's a different thing.
1: By virtue of it being a cult classic, it's not a classic.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's what I was saying. Okay, I'm right. That's all I gotta know is that I'm right. That's all I gotta know. That
1: means it's a weird little movie that a lot of weird people but thought was like special. Yeah, <laughs> but it's not a classic. Yeah. Okay, but that. Okay, but cult classes usually are ten years old. Yeah. Ten to twenty years old.
2: And then just also because people were also asking me, what kind of classic movie stop becoming a classic movie? Like, if you have a movie that's a classic movie. Can it later not be a classic movie?
1: No, it, its fortunes can rise and fall. Yeah. All right, you know, uh, uh, it will always be an old movie. All yeah. right, and if you want to call all old movies classics, you can. You don't put it in the old movie section of the videos. Now, not all old films are classics, but uh, uh, but uh, certain films will have a uh, uh, they'll have their day. They'll go through a period where they're uh um they're not thought of as highly. Yeah, and maybe that comes around. You know, there was a time in the '70s that High Noon was, oh, yeah, uh, was not was not, uh, was not thought of as, as as when I
0: was first introduced to the uh, High Noon as a yeah. film, as a as a boy, it was like, man, it's just like kind of this garbage movie.
1: Well, it's, a, it's like well, a programmer. Well, like, especially well, yeah, you know, it's like one of the only westerns to actually win Oscars. All right, you know, um, but especially there was this whole thing about a uh, High Noon in the, in the '70s because Howard Hawks was against it, and he was like, like the only reason I made. The only reason I made Rio Bravo was put a lie to, because uh, uh, I just tested uh, High Noon so much, so put a lie to it. Um, and a lot of people kind of jumped on that bandwagon. Mm. All right, yeah. And then, then it started... Cr- turning back around because actually the film is actually an editing tour de force. It's a movie, a movie completely saved by editing. And so anybody who appreciates good editing is going to be taken over by Like by director High Peter Noon.
0: Hyams who edits his own films yeah. and did almost a remake of High Noon with uh, yeah. Outland. I don't think he edits no, his I own films. That. I think no, he's, no. In,
1: well, he's in the room. Oh, he, I don't he's, think
0: he, he's in the Guild and he's an editor. He's, he's edited. But like he doesn't his, take credit for it. Okay. And okay. he is not above taking credit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's hands-on. All right, he's. Well, that's uh, where, that's yeah. what I mean. I mean of him more as somebody he can do it all. Yes. It looks like it yes, looks like exactly. he can do it all, mm-hmm.
1: and, and he yeah, no, does. No, Joe Dante was like was uh, um, pushing a reappraisal of High Noon on the editing
0: ba- on editing basis alone. Yeah.
1: But you know, but that's a good example.
0: And Joe yeah. Dante would know. He's there's another guy. Oh, he's another like terrific a master editor. editor. Yeah, I agree.
2: Yeah. The reason why lipstick is so effective is because the film highlights the realism in our world. Unfortunately, justice isn't always served to victims. Quentin highlights the frustrations that we all felt while watching the outcome of the courtroom sequence.
1: Uh, I, I forgot about this scene and just you, just, you talk, you waxing... <laughs> poetically about the courtroom scene reminded me my other favorite, along with her screaming, you're, you're killing me. All right. My other favorite Mariel Hemingway moment in the film is after the verdict happens. And then the, the rapist oh, yeah. is, and the rapist is like found not guilty. Both, both two sisters are, are pounced on by the, by mm-hmm. the press in this, feeding frenzy that finally like Anne Bankrupt gets them behind a door <laughs> oh. <laughs> and then barrel we're like fuck <laughs> it's so realistic yeah. It's like what the fuck was that <laughs> yeah it is. it's not even talking about the verdict
0: <laughs> with a with a very quick awkward fade to black afterwards yeah. it's,
1: just, it's just like fuck
2: what the hell was that
1: yeah and like you feel her frustration you, yeah. big, uh, big time.
2: For Chris Sarandon fans out there, you'll all know about his surprise performance in Dog Day Afternoon, which, by the way, is an amazing heist film. You guys should all go watch it. Heist Gone Wrong is one of my favorite subgenres. Quentin and Roger discuss the methodology behind Sarandon taking the role in lipstick immediately after Dog Day Afternoon. And as an added bonus, I weigh in on some of my favorite Chris Sarandon performances, including 1977 Sentinel.
1: And it was actually kind of very interesting because uh, he had just done Dog Day Afternoon earlier, where he was playing the uh, Al Pacino's um, love interest partner who wants to undergo a, a sex change yeah, operation. Transsexual. So everyone thought that's who he was. Yeah, he's <laughs> so good at it. Yeah, he was so good at it. They must have really found a Yeah, real, they, they know, found uh, <laughs> you know, some pre-op uh, 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 drag queen or something yeah. like that. And um,
0: No, I am an actor.
1: Yeah, and well, apparently he accepted the part of the rapist in Lipstick simply just to prove— that I have to, He had to counteract. He had to counteract his performance <laughs> in Dog
2: Day Afternoon. Quentin, I mean, you mentioned Dog Day Afternoon, and he mm-hmm. goes to Lipstick, and then after Lipstick, he does The Sentinel, which I don't know if either of you guys have seen it, but The Sentinel is wonderful, and he follows up his performance as a rapist with the performance of him being the best boyfriend possible, mm-hmm. and subverting all tropes, ha- having found,
0: having completely counteracted <laughs> the,
1: the, the, <laughs> the best saw... boyfriend possible in the worst devil occult movie possible.
2: I, I mean, I disagree, but maybe that's a conversation for well, another that's time. a
1: conversation for a different time because <laughs> I love
2: that movie. However, I will say
1: this. I had heard that the book was really good, like way after the fact. Mm-hmm. And so I I tracked down a copy of the Sentinel book mm-hmm. and started reading it. The book is so bad I realized actually Michael Winner did a better job than the <laughs> movie than I'm giving
0: credit.
1: I, <laughs> now, he fixed the I book. don't think that's ever been said. Michael Winner
0: did a better job <laughs> than previously thought possible. <laughs> It's a crazy-ass film, though, by the way, yeah. The Sentinel, with all the... Freaks that show up yeah, at the... I didn't want to say it, but yeah, yeah, yeah they yeah. just like... The like, guy with the balls on his chin. They roll out the, I always remember the guy with the testicle yeah, face. That's yeah, that's the craziest one. Yeah. Testicle yeah. face. If that if there is a hell, it's got a guy with balls on his face. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Just to clear things up, my reference to calling him the best boyfriend possible in Sentinel is me trying to avoid spoilers for all of you who haven't had the chance to watch this awesome movie. So once you've seen it, let's have a chat about it. I hope you guys agree with me that it's a great movie, because I have a feeling that Quentin and I will go toe-to-toe on it. Next up, something that all of us are still thinking about, the music and lipstick. I can't listen to the music without feeling physically ill from watching the intense scene that played alongside of it. Roger and Quentin talk about the effective score by Michelle Polnareff and how the music marries source and score.
0: As far as uh, best soundtrack, best composition, best composer, uh, Michelle Polnareff, Okay. yeah, Probably should also be given. To I don't give, know if I don't know if the word best, all right, <laughs> well, is it, applicable. It, it should, most <laughs> effective. Most, <laughs> most nauseating. Most disturbing. Yeah. Most uh, most rapey music. <laughs> oh, uh, it should be given. But it should I also might be, throw
1: irritating in
0: there. Yeah, it should also be given to David Foster, who uh, mm-hmm. at that time was no, not the, 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 it's, it's, I suspect. It's smacks of that electronic
1: noise that uh, Quincy Jones tried to pass off, all right, as a <laughs> score in like the Anderson Anderson. Take. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> when he's playing the rape music, his music, his rape music, that's yeah sourced. His source music. Yeah, in the film. Uh, that composer adds a... Comp- uh, a movie composition on top of it it becomes it goes from source to score yeah (sighs) well well it just marries it because the because the source is still going on yeah but then there's a little thriller movie music thrown on there that actually seems part of his composition it just uh uh there's a little editorializing going on and you know he's going to rape her as soon as she hangs up the phone yeah that's an, actually, that's a neat moment, the way it brings a, a score into the source, but they're almost undistinguishable. The only thing, the only thing that, that you can tell that a score is it's a little better. <laughs> it's a little better than his source music. Yeah.
2: <laughs> when watching Lipstick, Roger couldn't help but think of Video Archives employee Scott McGill. Roger recounts a personal story in connection to one of his best friends and the insane music in this movie.
0: I had very strange feelings watching him in this Mm -hmm. because um, he looked and even dressed exactly like our old friend, our deceased friend, Scott McGill. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Chris Randon kind of looked like Scott. And Scott was a composer. i the dressing part, but
1: I don't know if he looks like
0: Well, him, but... he kind of had that, you know, the little in this movie, okay. he, he looked like him to me. It was recalling him to me. I couldn't look at him and not think about him. Mm-hmm. Not Mostly because Scott used to do that. He would write some piece of music, some... Mm-hmm. Piano concerto. Some piano concerto, because he was brilliant. Mm-hmm. And he would write it, and then he would, like, you know, meet you in, I don't know, a parking lot somewhere or someplace, you know, a... a schoolyard or somewhere near other mm-hmm. people where anybody and he would with a boom box and start playing it for you mm-hmm. here let me play you my concerto to for rape number two yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> put it on <laughs> And you're there and you're like, this is great, but I don't really want to be listening to it here in the middle of like the parking lot with like me, like, like, the, like, the like basketball me. players over there looking at us. <laughs> it feels weird. Like when I read my reviews to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't choose to do that in the middle. of Well, maybe you would. Yeah. <laughs> But, um, and, and, and I don't know, it's music is such a personal, uh, at least in, in the way that Scott's music was, I don't know. It's, so anyhow, it started reminding me of Scott. Well, look, I buy that in look, a I, kind of, in a kind of weird way, because the guy's a rapist in well, the like, movie like, and, and Scott is not a, like, I'll be clear. I'm not implying that, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but you know, it, it actually, he was an odd duck. He's not a rapist, but he was an odd duck. And this guy's an odd duck. Well, it caused me to go back and, you know. Scott, who worked at the archives, whose father was at video outtakes. I mean, he committed suicide and uh, he left a document and a a musical piece to Mm me. The musical piece was called Summer of 1987. Mm -hmm. And it is a four hour long musical piece. And I've only listened to like the first side of the first tape because I just can't bring myself to mm -hmm. listen to the whole thing. And he left me a document called the initial understanding, which you know about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was his kind of explanation for why he did it. And I reread it after this movie. Oh, really? It, it actually caused me to go back and reread it. Uh, by which I quickly learned, <laughs> he was his his whole concern was I'm not talented enough. I know that I'm not as talented as I want to be. I wish that I was stupid and thought that I was talented, even though I wasn't. Was and also, that would have been well, preferable. he's so dumb because his movie was, it was better than most of us yeah, yeah. at that level. And it was, you know, and at was that, that age. He
1: was also, he questioned his stamina yeah. to be able to actually make it in the business. He questioned his stamina. Yeah, he, he less, his talent, less his talent, less his talent, more his stamina.
0: It's true. It's true. It actually, I wrote down a line that he said, which felt weird, to I mean, appropriate to me. It was, I wish I could write a song. Even if I was a bad songwriter who believed he was a great songwriter, that would be good enough. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I started thinking about like being so into your music. I started thinking about movies like Phantom of the Paradise, which was one of his favorite mm-hmm. films. A lot of his movies were these uh, uh, emotional, very musical, emotionally connected movies. And I started thinking about this guy who's a mess. Mm-hmm. You know, This is the inside of his head, this music that he's playing. He's trying to share it with people.
2: Is VHS always better? Well, not in this case. Quentin recounts how a joke in The One and Only landed differently when watching it on the big screen.
1: And then the way it's presented on television... This was not just a flaky thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she realizes,
0: oh no, this is actually a legitimate a career thing, yeah. now. And she also said, I don't want you mm-hmm. like this fake version of you. And he's being fake. Yeah. He's like, well, he's, oh, wearing no, the, fine. he's wearing the
2: underwear, even the. Yeah, well, the no, no
1: by the way, by the way, that joke is a little lost on television. All right. Uh, because uh, in the theater, when she was like, take all that junk off. And he takes all the clothes off and he's got just the, 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 yeah, the, those. Pa- those furry yeah. panties. All right. Uh, it's not as clear that they're furry panties <laughs> as it was. <laughs> Maybe on the Blu-ray it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As, as, as it was at the movie theater because it brought the whole house down when you saw, you really saw the fur and he even strokes it a yeah.
2: <laughs> And I, I really and like, like, like her line so at like, the end. Uh, like, if you got, if you got panties under those, it's yeah, over.
1: Yeah. He goes, so, so like, what are those? And then it, it stops. And it's like, what is it? Hey, I have to feel the part all yeah. the way down. <laughs>
0: De Niro would. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I can't move on from the one and only without giving a shout out to my favorite actor in the film. For anyone wondering, yes, I really do love Irving Villages. I'm actually watching Fantasy Island right now because of him. Ze plane, ze plane. Thanks for all of the smiles in the one and only, Irve. You are my favorite part of it. Ahem. Now that I've gotten that out of my system, let's turn to Slithis or Spawn of the Slithis. Roger and Quentin were overjoyed by this movie. So much so that I couldn't help but do a little bit of digging when it came to some of the actors in this movie. I was hoping to come up with some information on Roger's favorite, Bunky, but sadly, I came up short. It seems that he was either a Venice local or one of Steven Traxler's friends. On Quentin's favorite, Rex, however, I was able to find a little bit of information. It seems that Don Cummins was a North Carolina-based actor appearing in Dinner Theater Productions in Charlotte. He was a regular for J.G. Pat Patterson, a Southern-based producer-director, and acted in some of his films, like 1972's The Body Shop, also known as Axe, and 1976's The Electric Chair. But let's talk about the real stars of the show, the characters of Venice Beach and the spawn of Slithis itself. For Quentin and Roger, the combination of groovy monsters, interesting characters, and iconic cities pushed this movie over the top.
0: Uh, the, like voted, the, way, the, way, the way Pittsburgh or Baltimore com, com, are. The, the city yeah, is yeah. more a character in this movie than like almost any other movie I've ever, even like, I think I was mentioning other movies that have cities as characters like um, well, Don't Look Now yeah. or, you know, where the city of Venice is, you know, like a character well, in they the use, look, But, they but
1: use, this. But No Pictures uses Venice all the time because it's right
0: outside their lumber yard. Yeah, but, right, this was, yeah. but this was more but, than but just yeah, using never, Venice. But this, never like <laughs> a character the way this is. This yeah. was like, we're going to show you all of Venice. And, you know, the Rhode Island School of Design, at one point, they were like trying to save stuff and, and they were keeping a um, uh, an archive of porn films. Mm-hmm. And at one point, this was challenged. Like, why is the Rhode Island School of Design keeping this mm-hmm. library of porn films? And it was because they were trying to preserve – the uh, interior design and, fa- and fashion elements that yeah, were inside of those films. Absolutely. Which were just taking, is, there's furniture in those movies that, uh, you know, Ero Arneo chairs. No, no, and, no, look, no look, uh, well, we, look, we haven't mentioned that much about the monster
1: yet, but, but just before we get off this- Well, that's Ven- because
0: this is almost more important than the monster. Almost. The character of Venice in this film, if you know, Venice Beach. Look, I, I would agree with you. The monster is actually pretty
1: groovy. So the combination of yeah. a groovy monster, a groovy, a, a really groovy suit, a yeah. really, really groovy monster suit, and then all this Venice iconography is like it, it's it's irresistible. Yeah. Um, all the cheapness of the movie adds adds to it. Uh, uh, except uh, the monster suit itself
0: is not cheap. The monster suit is very well done. I, I would say all the uh, everybody is bringing everything to this. I mean, th- this is one of those movies that. Um... Uh, when you described it to me, it was like, oh, this is like a kind of a homegrown Mm -hmm. film. It was a bunch of, uh, you know, Hollywood tech people who got together and made this movie. So it's like, for lack of a better way of putting it, a lot of, you know, some below the line folks got together and used their amazing talent Mm -hmm. to make something for basically nothing. Mm -hmm. And uh, the movie scores with me on many, many levels.
2: I might be vegetarian, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy a good spice rub. My favorite place to get them is Smoke Bros, a veteran-owned and operated business that sells premium handcrafted dry rubs, spice blends, and seasonings. Psst. guys, you can even put it on your popcorn. My favorites are Honey Badger, because he doesn't give a bleep, and Jelly and Peanut Flavor Topping, because mmm, mmm, mm, some things just taste better together. The website even has recipes, so go check out SmokedBros.com to support a veteran-owned and operated business and fill your cabinet with delicious flavor. As a quick aside, Slithis captures the feeling of Venice Beach extremely well and feels like a time capsule that brings you right back to 1978. But, in my opinion, something should stay in 1978, such as the turtle races. Although it could be argued as cultural heritage, turtle races are a hot debate issue right now. As a friend of the turtles, you won't find me at Brennan's, as I personally think the turtles should be left alone. Slithis so may capture the city, architecture, and interior design, but it also captured the fashion of the time. One outfit in particular caught Quentin's eye.
1: Before I go into the history, that one other thing must be mentioned. Uh, is at some point the lead character for a long period of time he's wearing this outfit this one piece outfit uh, yeah. that you're watching and you're like what the fuck is that he's wearing and you're looking like you go holy shit that's the Italian leisure suit outfit that the kid buys in Freaks and Geeks. <laughs> yeah. That's the real version of it. That's what it really and looked he like. He is rocking it like in a way that like I couldn't. You no, know, he's really <laughs> rocking it. I mean, the closest thing the guy has to coolness is yeah. he can wear the Italian leisure suit and make it stick.
0: Yeah. <laughs> the Jufro helps a little. Yeah. The Jufro helps a lot. <laughs> yes.
1: And as I read it and as I, uh, and I just saw another film recently, uh, uh, Death Promise And the lead character In that is like This Puerto Rican Martial arts guy And he wears An Italian leisure suit <laughs> Does he pull
0: it off The way Alan Blanchard does? Not as thoroughly As Alan Blanchard
1: does But he pulls it off He de- They all pull it off Better than the kid In Freaks and Geeks <laughs> <laughs> Which wasn't intentional Yeah but, <laughs> it, but it's nice to know That the, that Italian leisure suit Was an actual thing It wasn't just something Yanked out of Judd Apatow's ass
2: Okay guys Let's talk about Jeff What was up with women of this time period being named Jeff? Jeffrey with a J was the 15th most popular name in the 1970s for boys. And Jeffrey with a G was the 193rd most popular for boys. So what's with all these ladies named Jeff in exploitation films? Does anyone out there know the answer? Please tell me. If you want to hear me rant about the other video archives, Jeff, Jennifer Gann, and Women in Cages, make sure to go back to After Show Episode 1. But for now, let's sing the praises to the good Jeff, played by Judy Maltolsky.
0: There's there's something to be said about um, how. Um, in, in any other actress's hands, a lot of the lines that she was delivered could have been more abrasive. Like, I don't believe you, what you're doing. Why don't you just like focus on your work and everything? But the way she's delivering those lines is always kind of in a loving way. Mm-hmm. Like she's never like, like, I still Actually, love you. Yeah, they, have, s-
1: they have, okay. One of the good lines is, uh, when well, he's talking about seeing these dogs that were ripped apart, he goes, well, it's sort of like this, uh, 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 I told you about that deer that I, I told told you about that deer that I saw. Well, you said you saw a dead deer. They go, no, but it was, it was, face was ripped off. It was just like a, it was like a satanic ritual.
0: She goes, whatever that would look like. (laughs) She had a lot of really good lines. She had a a lot of really good lines. Like, I was kind of hoping to see uh, Judy Motulski in uh, in more. No, no, no. no, In more than this. If if it had another low-budget movie that she was the star or even even the fifth lead, um, I would make a point to put it on, all right, for our next movie. Well, you can also catch Judy in as a passenger in the big bus from 1976. Oh, wow. Which actually... Kind of would like to see I that would, again. Yeah, no,
1: that's a, that's one
0: of the ones. I don't know if we're going to get through it, but that's one of the ones I want us to give it a shot. I would really like to give it a shot because yeah, yeah. I, there's one line in that when he uh, when the room is filling up with soda uh-huh. and he has to go down and like undo something. And he comes back up and he's like, I can't see anything down there. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. and, but they're in, like they're swimming in like Coca Cola. Yeah, yeah. And he's like yeah. opening his eyes under. <laughs> so, uh, anyhow, <laughs> uh, she's also in the Waltons. Oh, cool.
2: Investigator Gala on the case. I dug up some information on Judy Maltoski. She married actor Robert Walker, and the two opened up a gallery together, which sold functional art made by friends. One of their products was the sterling silver bubbler necklace, which Madonna blew at concerts. Sadly, Robert Walker passed away on December fifth, 2019. Judy Maltoski Walker now runs a business called Tops Malibu, which sells party favors. If you want to go check out her products, go to topsmalibu.com. The care and love that was put into Slythus reminded Roger of another director who uses the city of Los Angeles to his advantage, Don Coscarelli.
0: From the very first um, kind of shot of the movie, that sort of what I called or we called mm-hmm. the Kenny and Company. So you haven't yeah. seen yeah. Kenny oh, yeah, and yeah, Company, yeah, yeah. but, but it is it. Yeah. from Kenny and Company. Right. Kenny and Company is this movie by Don Coscarelli, who I'm a big, you know, I'm a big fan yeah. of. He directed Phantasm, but he did this movie when he was like. 18 or 19 called Kenny and about Company. About 12-year-old kids, yeah. About 12-year-old kids. And it probably takes place about 1978. Kenny and mm-hmm. Kenny is probably around when it was made. And there's this moment... It could his, literally be a scene taken from the out, outtakes of Kenny and Company. And in fact, this is almost like a movie Don Coscarelli could have made. Yeah, uh, yeah. In watching it, I was like, there was enough care and love mm-hmm. put into these little minor moments that I felt somebody was treasuring it the way the way uh, Don does.
2: Okay, we really, really, really like Slythus here at Video Archives, but there was one performance in the movie that stuck out like a sore thumb, The Police Chief. I may have said on the main episode that I liked his wacky performance, but I tend to like bizarre characters that appear to be in their own movie. But yeah, it was weird and out of place, and definitely not up to the level of the other performances in the movie. Roger reveals a theory about a potentially deleted scene, along with a difference in one important moment watching on VHS versus 35mm film.
0: Yeah, well, you can, except that it,
1: it's... Okay, so... But, I, it, but it does take the piss out of everybody else because I think you see
0: everybody else is actually trying. Everyone's trying. And he comes in and he's thinking that he's... Look, he came in and nobody regulated that guy. It was like they called Roger Avery and they said, hey, come in and be a wacky cop. No, no but you wouldn't do it like him. So you're, you're ruining your argument by using yourself. Okay. All right. Well, I suspect... That there was a scene cut with mm-hmm. him. I suspect at some point they looked at it in editing. And it was like, we got to get rid of this guy. And there is an, a first scene with him because they-, they Yeah, mentioned, they, they, he's mentioned earlier. And uh, so, yeah. but I suspect Mimi later probably told them, listen, looking at the script, you, you, you're you going to have to keep this second scene. There's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, he's the police <laughs> captain. You got to have it, yeah. And so- you kind of suffer through those moments yeah, but yeah. you're rewarded yeah so Steven these other, needed, needed to
1: adjust it, him on the day
0: correct and you're but you're rewarded with these other magnificent moments like like the bunky uh, character John Hatfield and uh and frankly you know just all these other weird the weird, the, players the, 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 in the, weird movie. the weird doctor guy with the with the fucked up face okay right? that <laughs> was the scene that I thought worked better on VHS yeah so yeah, when I, we I. watched that on 35. You had a beautiful print of it. We're watching the movie. We see it. There's a long shot yeah, of yeah. that guy. And you can see that his face is messed up. Mm-hmm. And then he comes down and the camera's kind of panning with them. And they're block- strategically blocking him mm-hmm. with foreground elements until yeah. he steps into his close-up. Mm-hmm. And it's like we see that he's this doctor who's obviously been studying the radioactivity too closely. Yeah. He's all mutated and everything. And it's meant to be a shock moment. Uh-huh. Okay. It's similar to that moment in The, the Brood when the guy yes. takes, uh, lowers the ascot. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so it still kind of works, but on VHS, it was softer and a little darker. And so he's actually bathed in shadow. And I think the VHS, believe it or not, actually is more true to the original intention. Yeah, I think uh, you might be right. I think it might be Because right he that, comes yeah. down and we actually don't see the face, it's bathed in shadow the entire time mm-hmm. until he comes into close up.
2: I agree with Roger. When I watched on digital, I could immediately tell that the guy's face was messed up from the radiation. I lost the shock and surprise reveal that the director intended. To wrap up our episode, let's listen to another theory. This time, it comes from me. What was up with the photograph of Rex, the neighbor that was borrowing the boat, and the prelit candles? Could it be love? Yeah. Oh, okay, wait, I have a You're small, right. You're absolutely I have a small right. theory about that photo, actually, that plays into the guy that's on borrowing his boat. I don't think he's borrowing his boat. I think that's his gay lover ah. that's come and has been waiting for him there. Well, that is kind of like... Because a, there's a, candles burning. There's a picture of him. I think he's like okay, in there then, is waiting Is this, for this him.
1: everything when you have nothing else to say? <laughs> you
0: yank out the gay subtext? No! <laughs> we read into <laughs> films. You read into it. Look, he's
1: Why just else there? would the uh, candles yeah. be lit? Yes.
0: Why are the candles lit?
1: That and his is... gay lover is
0: Tom Selleck <laughs> from <laughs> Coma.
2: <laughs> that is the evidence. <laughs> or it is the son of the... Uh, Seltzer in uh, The One and Only there yeah. you go who knows <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah the, the son of Seltzer in One and Only grows up to be Rex yeah Rex Rex is okay uh, Rex Rex is, look I. he's the king we've got so much subtext on Rex he's not gay <laughs> No, he's no. not by leaning. All right. <laughs>
0: no, but that other guy who's sitting on his boat might be his like I
2: mean look, Rex could be trisexual. He could be wanting to try anything. Who knows? Well, no, he doesn't. Oh, yeah. you mean the guy oh yeah, oh
0: I'm talking you about You mean that guy just hanging out on the boat. What the yeah. fuck are you doing here? Yeah, man? what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> oh, I'm just watching TV until you got home. I I thought uh, we'd hang out and he's like uh, no, uh, three's a crowd. Yeah, you might want to go. <laughs> yeah. And then he's like, I don't know what that guy, guys, a frustrated boat owner who wishes he had a boat. He lives in the buildings in the marina here. Who is
2: this guy who comes out and sits on his boat and lights the candles? Actually, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> and that's our show. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Video Archives After Show. Have a burning question that you want the answers to? Make sure to write in for a chance to have your question featured on the After Show. Next week, join Quentin and Roger as they discuss three new films. Want to know ahead of time what we're watching? Here's a riddle for all of you loyal fans out there. Try and figure it out. The first movie is based on the private life of a detective. The second movie takes place in a fiery land and features a returning Video Archive's leading lady. And the third is a Mexican action film featuring a family under siege. Hell hath no fury like me, Gala Avery, signing out for today. See you next time on the Video Archives After Show. Despite me sharing the same last name with this charity, I don't have any affiliation with it, besides the fact that the issue is very near and dear to my heart. Did you know that in the United States, 2.7 million children currently have a parent in prison, and it's estimated that 10 million children have experienced parental incarceration at some point in their lives? I was one of these kids, and as an adult, I am really grateful to be able to give back to Project Avery. Their mission is to build leadership from within by supporting community through programs such as mentoring and outdoor education, and also to remove the stigma surrounding having a parent that's incarcerated. You don't have to feel alone. If you know a kid who could use these resources or would like to donate money or time to the charity, please go to Project Avery, that's A-V-A-R-Y dot org to check out what this amazing charity is all about. Again, that's projectavery.org. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts.